Anglophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to another exciting episode of Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. I'm Kaylee McMahon. And today we are discussing Blackadder. Woof. <laughs> Woof. <laughs> <laughs> Woof! Oh my god, he's he's my favorite. We're getting so far ahead of ourselves. But uh, this was a really fun one to not just rewatch, but in the case of several episodes, watch for the first time. Because as I think I mentioned last week, I hadn't seen... It turns out any of season one except for the first episode. Really? Had you? Opposite. I had only seen the first series and the first episode of season two. Wait, so you had never seen any of seasons three or four before this week? I told you. Oh, I thought that we had Britcon Club. I was sure I would have forced some ink and incapability on you because that was my favorite episode as a kid. I th- Okay, as far as... um. Meetings of the Royal Britcom Club that I definitely attended. I know we watched the pilot, which I kind of still sort of like. I do too. I think that I'd keep that and chuck the rest. Yeah, it just kind of um doesn't really stick with what they very much set up in that first episode, which which we'll talk about. But yeah. no, we, we definitely watched the pilot and we watched the Dickensian Christmas episode, but that was it, man. We did not go through Blackadder like we did League and Young Ones and all the other wow. stuff. Oh, okay. Well, mea culpa, because those were definitely my VHS sets and my living room. So that's that's an oversight on my part. And I would like it's to okay. officially offer an apology 16 years later. Bruh. We did not know that League of Gentlemen was going to take over every square inch of our like collective consciousness. No, that so, is that is yeah. very true. So Blackadder. Blackadder is the most high concept show we've ever talked about. And it's also the show that evolved the most over the course of its run. So we're going to break it down for you guys by season and do our best to talk about it in chronological order. All right. So there were four seasons plus a couple specials that we'll also talk about. The Blackadder was the name of the first season and it aired in the summer of 1983. It was written by Rowan Atkinson, who was then a hotshot comedian, and they wanted to give him a vehicle to star in. And Richard Curtis, who, for anyone who doesn't know, is now quite famous for his work as a filmmaker. He's kind of the king of rom-coms. He's the man behind such classics as Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, Notting Hill, the Bridget Jones adaptation, and many others. And he also went on to co-create Mr. Bean with Rowan Atkinson, which we discussed in our inaugural episode of this very podcast. The Black Adder starred Rowan Atkinson as Prince Edmund, a.k.a. The Black Adder, Brian Blessed as King Richard IV, Elspeth Gray as the Queen, Robert East as Prince Harry, Tim McInerney as Percy, and Tony Robinson as Baldrick, the least stupid incarnation of all of the Baldricks. Yes. The series takes place in the Middle Ages in an imagined alternate history where King Richard III, portrayed in the pilot by veteran comedian Peter Cook, did not in fact murder his nephews, the princes in the tower, and won the Battle of Bosworth Field, thus extending the Plantagenet dynasty, at least for the course of these six episodes, only to be accidentally decapitated by his bumbling great-nephew Edmund. Uh, what's unique about the season is that it was filmed entirely on location in a castle in Northumberland in the dead of winter, rather than in front of a live studio audience, as with all the subsequent seasons. Um, and it's the least successful for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll cover, but you do have to admire its ambition, because... What they were going for with this show was a sort of sprawling, epic adventure. And while it does miss the mark in many respects, it's not terrible. I think I was expecting it to be worse. Uh, and I think it's become sort of more terrible in memory because we now have the perspective of being able to compare it to what came later, which was just magic. Touche. 
I think that one of the kind of biggest things that I sort of noticed as being a, a flaw is that, so they have this Richard III thing. They definitely have a Macbeth sort of theme too. Yes. With the ghost at the dinner and the foretelling where there's the three weird sisters. And then they drop the Shakespeare thing completely. No, you're completely right about that. And it's not just the plot points that are a nod to Shakespeare, but uh, but also the stylized dialogue. I think that that's the strongest part of the pilot. And it's something that they maintained in subsequent seasons while just scrapping the other elements of the first season that didn't work. Uh, one of my favorite things about the whole series is the sort of vaguely Shakespearean flavor to the language and the sort of flowery expressions that they use. And we have a great example of that right up top. After King Richard III has been killed, King Richard IV says, This day has been as t'were a mighty stew in which the beef of victory was mixed with the vile turnip of sweet Richard slain and the grisly dumpling of his killer fled. I mean, that's kind of fucking great. And That is. And the language got only more playful and absurd and ridiculous as the seasons went on. And we'll talk about all of the amazing extended metaphors and and beautiful similes and weird vegetable (laughs) comparisons. There's so much fun to be had with the language in this show. And you can see the seeds were planted early. They just didn't really go far enough with it or stick to what their strengths were, I think. They they were sort of chasing too many different things. They were. And I think that for as amusing as the first Edmund sort of is, with being such a complete idiot with the strange haircut. Um, Did you know that was his real hair? No, it wasn't. It fucking was. Are you serious? Single- no, it really was. I had always assumed that it was a wig. But um, I read a really fantastic book by J.F. Roberts called The True History of the Black Adder. And if you, like me, are a big Black Adder fan and you have the time and the inclination to read a 450-page book about Black Adder, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I don't know so, how yeah, you did all this. Reading that, I actually laughed out loud when I found out that that was his real hair. Wait, wait, he said no. that he felt very embarrassed going into a store with that bowl cut. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. God love him. I'm glad that this show went on to be so good because that would have been quite a sacrifice to make if it had only... I know been the one season it was amusing to see the dopey edmund and his terrified scream is funny every time yeah i mean that voice is really funny but again rowan atkinson said a funny voice and a funny haircut do not a good character make no in fact they had spent so much time and so much money on the location and shooting this really elaborate thing that ultimately didn't require any of that extra stuff that you know they were about to shoot the first scene and Rowan Atkinson came up and said, what's my character? And they hadn't planned what the character would be. So he just like came up with that voice. And it was just, it was funny because really he, he's always funny no matter what he does. It just, it really didn't work. It didn't work for Baldrick to be the smartest of the three dopey friends. No. There's too many, too many thickos, too many pickles <laughs> in the pickle jar. And also we have these historical backdrops, but you know, the comedy comes from these people who are just as modern as we are, who react mm-hmm. to things the way we would react. And that's how we connect with them. Yeah. We're able to connect with the Black Adder of seasons two through four, mm-hmm. because he's the only sane person in the room who's reacting to things the way that we would he's tim canterbury but wittier yeah we we can't really connect with him in season one because he's so weird it's true and because it's not really till season four that black adder gets like kind of more human yeah it's kind of like just the opposite it's like all right there's there's no real human moments there's no character to kind of 
ground us. After a while, it just becomes too much pandemonium. I know that the Baldric is arguably the smartest of the Baldrics, but there still isn't a straight man besides Edmund's brother. Yeah. And it kind of became necessary, I think, in a way, just to sort of tighten everything and you can't have too many clowns so Blackadder yeah. sort of had to become a hilarious I don't want to call him a straight man but in a way no but I think that was kind of no, was. Was something that I was definitely going to we're, we're jumping ahead here and already talking about what's great about the later seasons because we just don't want to talk about season one well, but no. truly you do need to compare them you do need to compare them yeah. we had talked about the difficulty of finding a f- or portraying a funny straight man and I didn't even ever realize it because I never thought of him in these terms before but Blackadder from seasons two through four is absolutely the straight man he because is. he is the sanest and the least zany character in a world where he's surrounded by idiots and crazy people and he's so funny and he doesn't need to have a silly voice or a silly haircut for you to to laugh at him because right he's yeah we'll we'll, we'll talk about later incarnations of Blackadder but is there anything we want to say about this season. The highlight of season one is Jim Broadbent as that Spanish guy. (laughs) I completely agree. I completely agree. Well, we're actually talking about what I think might be the strongest episode of that first season, which is the Queen of Spain's beard. Yes. I mean, it's silly. I'm not saying it's like a fantastic achievement in storytelling or in comedy. No, it's silly. And I gotta say, I'm not... As a woman, I'm not a huge fan of ugly woman humor. I think that it's a lazy thing and you, they could do better and they went on to do much better. But for that shitty genre of comedy, it is pretty funny. That's they, what I'm saying. They do a good job of it. I'm not a fan of the ugly girl humor either, but I think it's the presence of Jim Broadbent that makes it something a little bit different. Oh, yeah. It's not just that there is an ugly Spanish princess who's going to marry Edmund, but that she's got this interpreter with her... 24 7 including when they send baldrick to have sex with her (laughs) 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 and then also it's it's funny how the way that the episode concludes is by him marrying an eight-year-old that is it's funny until you realize that child marriage is actually a real thing that still happens like in the united states to this day yeah because i was like oh what a funny dig on the middle ages and how stupid it was to marry off children oh wait that is a thing Write to your Congress people, guys. Make that shit illegal because it's disgusting. I had the same exact thought. I just think that there's kind of too much wackiness in the first season and not necessarily wacky in a good way. It's like a wacky fatigue. Yeah, it's wacky. And it's also, it's a lot of lowbrow humor without really anything except for the the vaguely Shakespearean influence that I mentioned before to balance that out. Because yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot of knob jokes in seasons to come, but because they're sprinkled in among these really amazing farce elements and this dexterous, witty wordplay, it's, it's a flavorful stew. It's not just one note over and over again. I think it's a waste of Brian Blessed. I would have loved to have seen Brian Blessed again in a better season of Blackadder. I don't know where. Well, did but... you know that he was originally going to play Queen Elizabeth? And why didn't that happen? Um, Scheduling. He just was unavailable. Okay. Fuck. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, Miranda Richardson is priceless, but I would kind of like to see an alternate version where there's even just oh, one episode or one no! scene of that. <laughs> Oh my god! Okay, that would have changed things a lot. Oh my god! It's just one of the many amazing things that I learned in this fabulous book that you all should run out and get. I don't know if we have anything nicer to say about season one, Kaylee. Could we move on? Let's jump forward. Season two almost didn't happen because season one was 
pretty poorly received and the BBC were planning on giving it the axe. And Ben Elton had seen the show. Ben Elton had already done The Young Ones at this point and he liked it. He was one of the few people who really liked it. And so he and Richard Curtis then wrote the rest of the seasons together. And that artistic collaboration, their chemistry writing together is so perfect. They would each write three scripts and then rather than writing together in the room, they would just exchange and rewrite each other's work until their voices kind of blended into a single thing. So fortunately, I think they wrote the entire season of Blackadder 2 on spec and brought it to the BBC and begged and said, look, we're going to do it in front of a studio audience. There won't be any location, any crazy elaborate sets. And so because they turned in really good scripts and cut down the cost, they were allowed to do it. And thank God. So Blackadder 2 aired in winter of 1986, and the series saw Blackadder get demoted from medieval royalty to Elizabethan courtier. It starred Rowan Atkinson as Lord Edmund Blackadder, Tim McInerney as Lord Percy Percy, Tony Robinson, again as Baldrick, Miranda Richardson as Queen Elizabeth I, Stephen Fry as Lord Melchett, and Patsy Byrne as Elizabeth's nurse, Nursey. I think it's really interesting that it's now two weeks in a row that we're talking about shows in which Ben Elton joined the writing team for to clean everything up. He's he's my hero. I think that this season opener, I really enjoyed Bells. It might be my favorite. I think that... I mean, Rowan Atkinson is hot as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) We'll agree to disagree. Oh, okay. Damn. Oof. You. Oh, look at you. (laughs) Oh, yes. Do it. What are you doing? Oh. (laughs) I'm talking to him. (laughs) Get a room. You know what, though? I felt completely vindicated when Mandy Fletcher, who was the director, said that when Rowan actually came out of the trailer dressed in the Elizabethan regalia, not looking like an idiot with a bob, you know, like looking actually kind of handsome with his goatee, all the girls kind of went, oh. And and that was my reaction, which was, oh. The lesson for any men out there is if you get a terrible bowl cut and then the next year (laughs) you ditch the terrible bowl cut and grow some semi-flattering facial hair, you can trick people into thinking that you're a lot more attractive than you are. The key is setting super low expectations. Hey, no, it's like he's been queer-eyed, dude. He grows that (laughs) good. He's been queen-eyed. I don't know. I it works for me and oh. Is he is Elizabethan Blackadder the Blackadder that you are most attracted to? Well, <laughs> let's just dive right in. Go for it. Mm. It's actually really hot in my apartment, so I'm pulling on my shirt. But I I don't know if the discussion has helped my sweat. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Sweet Lord. I mean, Elizabeth and Rowan Atkinson, it's like a shock to the system. But I think that my crush for real might be season four, Blackadder, because I feel like it's all the things. But in season two, when he wakes up with that discount prostitute and he's all shirtless, <laughs> wow, <laughs> looking all girl. manly, I'm like, right. oh, hello. See, for me, it's Victorian era Edmund Blackadder, or no, Ebenezer Blackadder. When he comes down after his nightly vision, he's got that amazing suit. Oh, okay. Well, then. Okay, okay. Why why am I the weirdo of the conversation? (laughs) Because I just like making fun of you. No, okay. But anyway, back to the actual (laughs) show. So 
throughout the show, there are a lot of historical inaccuracies, which is, you know, totally fine because they do it in service of, like, having characters who are famous figures from history show up, you know, either after they were dead or before they were born or before they did the famous thing that they are talking about in that episode. But there are very few intentional anachronisms, and that was a deliberate choice on the part of the creators. However, there are two exceptions that I can think of, and one of them is in the episode Bells, where there's the montage with him and Kate, who is disguised as Bob, frolicking together while there's subtitles seeming to advertise a compilation CD, or I guess tape, would be the because CDs weren't a thing yet. I love that. I love so that much. moment. Hot sex magical in the middle of my tights. I think is my favorite song title that scrolls across the bottom. <laughs> Bob comes to Blackadder disguised as a boy because she and her father have no money, right? So the father suggests she become a prostitute. But rather than do that, she dons a kind of boy's costume and then goes to volunteer her services as servant to Lord Blackadder. And there we go. Hilarity ensues. Yes. And the show, again, returns to its very Shakespearean roots because that is the plot of, I'd say, half of Shakespeare's comedies, or at least his best remembered ones, or girls dressing as boys for various reasons. Mm -hmm. You can really feel Ben Elton's presence in this because this is, I think, the episode that is the most young ones like. And it's not just because of Rick Mayle, but that certainly helps. It's also the only episode where anybody directly addresses the camera in that one scene where Lord Flashheart, as Edmund's best man when he's about to marry Kate, swoops in, crashes through the ceiling, and then makes off with the bride. It's probably my single favorite scene in the entire season. And he looks at the camera, and Queen Elizabeth also looks at the camera and says, I've got such a crush on him. It's very, very silly and fourth wall breaking. I think my favorite quote in that is, She's got a tongue like an electric eel, and she likes the taste of a man's tonsils. (laughs) The way that he emphasizes the word man is... Oh, funny. Yeah, a man's tonsils. And then when he's hitting on every single person, oh my God, something that I love so much in any show where the joke is that people are very obviously cross-dressing and people can't tell because they're fooled by clothes. It happens when Percy starts flirting with Baldrick in a dress, which also reminded me of Vivian and Neil and the Young Ones. Same. And then later in season four, we'll get to that when George does a drag act and General Melchett falls in love with him. It's just, it's so funny. And, and that most people even buy Bob as a boy just because she's wearing boys' clothes. It's hilarious. Like, there's no other attempt to disguise their sex. It's just the clothing. And it's, it's a very funny convention that never fails to tickle me. At the same time, though, I'm really glad that they have that very Shakespearean idea of, oh, it must be a boy for he wears pants. Oh, yeah. Back to Lord Flashart for a second. There's something that's so great about a character who is just an indiscriminate flirt. You know, who just like an, an equal opportunity pussy hound who will, you know, he, he will fuck anything that's even remotely female, even if it's Baldrick in a dress. Thanks, bridesmaid. Like the beard. <laughs> Gives me something to hang on to. And he flirts with Nursey just as much as he flirts with the queen. It's just, I really don't like it when there are characters in fiction who are like, oh, I'm, I'm the crazy horny one. But then they're like, ew, no fat chicks, you know, or they're yeah. ageist or they don't like somebody because they're just not conventionally good looking. It's like, yeah, it, there's something oddly feminist about Lord Flashheart's appreciation of all things vaguely female. 
That is completely true. I really like that interpretation. That's why I love him. And I love in the documentary when Richard Curtis said that Rick Mayall agreed to do this show if all of his lines were funnier than Rowan Atkinson's. <laughs> and, yes. and how, like, when when Rick would be on set in season two and season four, how, like, Rowan would just kind of slip away and do his own thing and kind of let yeah. Rick Mayall have center stage. I really liked that Rowan Atkinson allowed it. Rowan Atkinson even had a quote where he said something thing like he was like the MC where he would just step aside and say and now ladies and gentlemen Rick Mayle stepping aside and letting the guest stars have their moment and the thing is it didn't take away from his funniness because what's amazing Rowan Atkinson is absolutely a comedic genius I don't throw around the word genius lightly we already discussed his masterful physical comedy and his miraculous rubber face when we talked about him in Mr. Bean but this is just a lesson in restraint and in minimalism and in the incredible mileage that he can get out of just a single deadpan look or the subtle cock of an eyebrow as opposed to his his full body antics with Mr. Bean like they're they're both just as funny and it's so great to see how he can play his instrument loudly or softly to the exact same comedic effect Mm -hmm. it's brilliant he doesn't need to be shouting and saying all of these crazy things he is absolutely the funniest straight man in history i think yeah because he's the least zany character but every single line that they wrote for him is fucking hilarious and he gets a laugh every single time and it's never forced it's never a pity laugh it's always you fucking nailed it rowan Mm -hmm. good on you this is the season where the characters sort of start to solidify and and crystallize yeah this is the season where baldrick rather than being a friend becomes the stupid lowly servant who only gets stupider and lowlier as history progresses and meanwhile edmund blackadder is this really cynical cool cunning witty biting character who is completely ruthless uh, though even he softens by the end a tad. But yeah, the the characters, they start to take shape and then they just get slightly refined and tweaked in each subsequent season. But I, I, it did make me reassess something that I said when we were talking about Faulty Towers and why the American remakes of Faulty Towers don't work is that it doesn't work when a character is cool. And generally, I don't like characters who are cool and I don't like people who are cool. But ugh, Blackadder is either making me reassess that rule or he's just the exception that proves the rule because nobody nobody's cooler than Edmund Blackadder he is the coolest okay I love that you and I had the same thought because Basil Fawlty can't be cool he has to be very much affected by what's happening Mm -hmm. and he has to get angry when things don't go his way and he has to have secrets and be completely unable to deal with you know emotions and um that's just not how Edmund Blackadder is As I was watching it, I was writing down, like, why do I like this even though it's the complete opposite of Basil Fawlty? Because there are moments where clearly Mm -hmm. Basil and Manuel have have become Edmund and Baldrick. 100%, yeah. But Edmund doesn't get worked up over anything. So why does it work? Talking about Fawlty Towers, the whole reason that this show happened and was set in the past was... You know, Faulty Towers stands as the gold standard for sitcoms. It, it was, and I think in many ways still is. It casts such a long shadow. And with this, they were so intimidated by the perfection of Faulty Towers that they were 
too daunted to even attempt to do something contemporary. So that is why, in order to not even risk the slightest comparison, although obviously we're still comparing them, they wanted to set it in an era where you couldn't possibly have it resemble it. Um, I want to talk about the Queen Elizabeth character. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's hilarious. This is a really fantastic performance. And this is also a performance that I think really helped to define the character because they were talking about how they had written the character, but it was all sort of vague and they had auditioned about 40 women for the part and none of them seemed quite right. And then she came in and just completely made it her own thing. I loved when she was explaining in the documentary that her interpretation of her Elizabeth was someone who was given entirely too much power entirely too soon and what that person could eventually look like. Still very much a child with the ability to have people put to death. She's funny. She's also completely fucking terrifying. And I was writing down in my notes that it's so scary to have such a capricious childlike leader. And then I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> These are the times that we're living in now. It's it's too close to home. It was funny when I was, you know, in middle school. And now it's like, oh. That also kind of echoes the season one child bride. I had that exact same thought. The capricious monarch, as with the eight-year-old wife, much of the show is funny until you realize how far we haven't come. And then it's funny because <laughs> laugh or you'll cry. Who is the black adder of the White House? Oh, there's no black adder in the White House. Well, I know that. <laughs> I mean, there's no but... one who's remotely, there's no one clever enough. There's no one cunning enough. It's all just Baldrick's yeah. and, and Queenie's and, and Prince George, but without the niceness. <laughs> just oh, man. a bunch of fucking malicious yeah. idiots. Damn, I thought that would be a fun discussion. I guess, I guess it's not. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's anybody. I don't know. I mean, like, maybe in, maybe in, like, the Bush years, like, maybe Cheney was the black adder. He wasn't as likable or as funny, but he was definitely the one sort of masterminding, kind of like a season three era. Right, because season two black adder might be the most eloquent and cunning person in the room, but he manages to fuck up many a cunning plan. In season three, I think, he... You trust that he is cunning enough to get out of absolutely anything and also that the people Mm -hmm. around him are stupid enough to be manipulated. But Queen Elizabeth, even though she's not very smart, she does have absolute power and she's very headstrong and stubborn and will have her way, even if it means Mm -hmm. cutting off everybody's head in order to get it. She's not going to be as easily manipulated as, say, Prince George. Yeah, not at all. So the character of Nursey. Her Christian name is Bernard. Mm -hmm. She comes from a family with all daughters and they all have male names. Mm -hmm. And it's a funny sort of thread that runs through pretty much all of Richard Curtis's work is that there are characters who are often stupid or the butt of a joke named Bernard. And the reason for this is that when he was in school, he had a girlfriend, fell in love, and then got his heart broken when she left him for someone named Bernard, who then, I think, turned out to be a Tory politician just to, you know, further twist the knife. So he's had his revenge by having this amazing career writing romantic stories with happy endings where there's some stupid person in them named Bernard. Isn't that fantastic? Oh my goodness. That's great. <laughs> I love that. You know, there's there's a lot of vegetable humor on this show, and it's not just from Baldrick, and it's not just turnips. And I can't think of any other show of which I could say the same thing. I find it very delightful, and I want to share a quote from that book that I read that explains the origin of the turnip fixation. Okay, good. This is Richard Curtis saying, I can remember Ben bouncing up to me and saying, I've got a great idea. Tony, 
Baldrick loves turnips. I said to him, what's so funny about turnips? And he said, you know, they're shaped like that and they go to a point at the end. And I said, Ben, that's parsnips. And he said, whatever, it's really funny, believe me. I said, Ben, really, it's not going to get a laugh. It's like the most unfunny thing in the world, which proves how little I know about comedy and how much Ben knows. But on the other hand, I do know much more about root vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that delightful? Well, it's that sort of part of British humor that just drops the intellectual side and becomes purely childish and playful. Oh, yeah. And um, I kind of feel like in a way in season three, when Baldrick gets the giant turnip shoved onto his head, it's, <laughs> yes. it's like a very young one's moment, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With the sandwich or the eclair. I think about the dancing carrot and yeah, and the singing tomato, which <laughs> is a fruit. But uh, yeah, no, produce. Yeah, it's very funny. That's the thing. Um, do we do we move on? To... I, th- I think so, because I feel like we both keep referring to these two very incredible seasons. Yeah. So moving on to the Georgian era, we have Blackadder the Third, which aired in fall of 1987, starred Rowan Atkinson as Edmund Blackadder, a butler, Tony Robinson, again, as Baldrick, and Hugh Laurie as Prince George. This is actually, I think, my favorite season even though I think that season four is better in a lot of ways, this is the one that I enjoy most because it has my favorite episode. And also, it's such a beautiful era. I love the sets and the costumes. It's the most aesthetically pleasing of these seasons for me. And also, I just love the character of Prince George so much. Can I guess what your favorite episode is? Yes, you can. Does it involve the Scarlet Pimpernel? No. Oh! It involves a dictionary. Oh, it's ink and incapability, Yes, it, it is. Okay, yeah. Sorry, you mentioned that at the top of the show. The farce of the plot is so tight. The conceit that they need to rewrite a dictionary that has taken a man 10 years to write over a weekend, and that the only help that Blackadder has is Prince George and Baldrick, who are the biggest thickos in the history of all of England. It's just fantastic. And all of the wordplay is so good. There's that fantastic dream sequence that just slayed me as a child me too i there's nothing that i don't love about it it's completely perfect from start to finish and anyone who's ever like cracked open a dictionary even from the day that you you do that in school where teacher goes to show you a dictionary and it's just burned in your brain that the first two entries are a and aardvark (laughs) and then they reveal that the author of the dictionary didn't even include aardvark and that he's been slaving over the definition of aardvark for five hours. I'm so glad that you bring up Aardvark because that's actually, I think, one of the very few moments where Edmund does lose his cool over the course of this series. Medium-sized insectivore with protruding nasal implement. Doesn't sound much like a bee to me. It's an Aardvark! Can't you see that, your highness? It's a bloody Aardvark! (laughs) It's the only time that he loses that completely cool deadpan delivery. It's priceless. I kind of felt like as I was watching Blackadder, the character in season three, season two and maybe four, I got more of the Basil Fawlty vibe, but season three, I thought of Father Ted. Interesting. How so? In season three, he's this butler. And I love that season two and three, Edmund, are similar in tone, but you can see they're still completely different people and it's not just the costume. Mm -hmm. I think that season three Blackadder is somehow even less energetic but even smarter like i kind of love that he's able to do that and i can't i can't exactly say why but that that's um it's the vibe but (laughs) i kind of just got this this father ted thing where it's like i know that you know growing up 
you know, back then you're kind of born into into service. You don't necessarily choose to be a prince's butler. But more than anything, I got this idea of like, why are you here? You're miserable. And and that's a question that, you know, you ask yourself where you're watching Ted going, I know you're miserable on Craggy Island, but you also just seem miserable to be a priest. Why are you doing this? And again, I I said, you know, I know you're born into service, but there is that episode where George pisses off Edmund and Edmund decides to go get a different job. (laughs) So I, you know, it's like, well, you could do that. You hate George and Baldrick this much. Why are you here? And I guess also because they don't have the Percy character, they have one less. So you have the three of them and you have you know, the the straight man and then two idiots. So that was yes. the one that kind of reminded me most of Father Ted. Yes, I understand that. Well, there's the, unlike with Father Ted where they're all priests on the same level, in this case, there's the idiot above and the idiot below. There's a clear chain of command there. And I think that the reason that Edmund does stay is that he likes that proximity to power. And even though each generation of black adders he falls further down in the class system he starts off as royalty then he's a lord now he's just a butler but he is also a butler to the prince and so he's able to manipulate this incredibly stupid man and bend him to his will but i did also think about dougal when i was thinking about prince george because he's just he's he's such an affable imbecile Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's privileged and and a complete dolt but he's there's a slight sweetness to him that of course gets further refined and perfected in season four but but you don't hate him or fear him in the way that you might elizabeth no especially since he's not as impervious to criticism and you know revolutionaries as elizabeth is you have the sense and senility episode where george is at the theater and those anarchists take over the production and throw a bomb at him which he just willingly catches (laughs) (laughs) he's not a threat because he's a prince but you can see that there's public opinion yeah yeah i just love the two actors who come to teach him elocution and and presentation how every time black adder says Macbeth, they do the stupid because i hate theater people who are afraid of the word Macbeth. it's like why are you pretending that you believe this well also doesn't it only matter in a theater that too like i try to be respectful and say the scottish play if i know that i'm in someone's workplace and they're going to need to do a show that night but like fuck you if you can't say Macbeth out in the world yeah I'm sorry if any of you happen to be listening to this podcast while you're in a theater. I hope I didn't just jinx you. <laughs> but back to this incarnation of Blackadder. This is definitely the most ruthless version of him and also mm-hmm. the most effective. Even though he has fallen with each generation, he is his most powerful here. Because as a prince, he's completely impotent and incompetent and doesn't get anything done. He's king for, what, 10 seconds before he's poisoned. And then, again, he's always at Elizabeth's mercy. But this is the season where he's most on his game and his mm-hmm. plans work out for the best. It's also the only season where he doesn't die at the end. Does he die at the end of season two? Everyone dies at the end of season two, except for Wait, Hugh wh- Laurie in the, in the episode Chains. The Master of Disguise comes back and kills everybody and then takes the throne disguised as Elizabeth. That happens after the credits. Did you tune out before the credits? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my god, you missed the <laughs> What the f- Always watch to the end of the credits. Oh wait, okay, wait. Going back, we haven't even talked about credits. The credits sequence. No! What is this? No wait, go back, never mind. They all die? <laughs> 
<laughs> this is okay. One of my favorite professors, the late great Stephen Bach, who taught film at Bennington College, always taught us that you should stay until the very end of the credits whenever you're watching anything because it is part of the film. And truly now with like, you know, big summer movies and superhero reboots, there is often a tag at the end. So a lot of people have caught on to the fact that you should stay till the end because you might be missing something. And in season two, they've got those fantastic songs. The theme song also evolves, and we should talk about Howard Goodall because he's a longtime collaborator of Richard Curtis and Rowan Atkinson, and he did such a great job rearranging the theme song for every era, and it captures the mood and the feel of each season. So yeah, at the end of every single episode of season two, you've got a minstrel singing these silly lyrics that pertain to the subject matter of the episode that we have just watched. So I was sticking around to watch the conclusion and to hear all of the funny lyrics that Richard Curtis had penned. And so, yeah, if you stay till the end of Chains, Ludwig, he, he doesn't actually die when Edmund stabs him in the fake Nursey as a cow costume. There's a shot of Queen Elizabeth and Nursey and Percy and Baldrick and Melchett and Blackadder, all with their throats slit in a big pile. And then you have... Miranda Richardson with Hugh Laurie's voice in a German accent saying, oh, I'll enjoy this disguise the best yet. I've just got to work on the voice. I can't believe you didn't see that. (laughs) That's terrible. It's wonderful. It's terrible that you missed it. Because I didn't (laughs) skip this. I didn't skip the fucking songs. I don't know why I skipped that one. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Probably because it was that feeling of and season completed. Next. You jumped the gun, wow. man. <laughs> well, I didn't go to Bennington. Oh, my god. Well, you can still learn from Stephen even if you didn't study under him directly. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so the credits at the end of season one never change. The credits at the end of season two change with the business that they're doing around the garden and with the, the antics with the minstrel. And then the credits in season three don't change, except it's fun to read the little descriptions because they've got the a much admired comedy by Mr. So-and-so. Yeah, the credit sequences, both opening and closing on the show, are so fantastic. And I love the titles of the episodes in Blackout at the Third, how they're all modeled after Jane Austen novels with Incant yeah. and Capability, Knob and Nobility. Ooh, was that, did you have a favorite episode from this season? Was that yours? Or did you just think I... it was mine? No, you know what? I was dying and laughing out loud at dual and duality. So we can talk about knob and nobility first. This goes back to something we've discussed, which is the British fascination with making fun of Europeans. I think that it's expertly done here. It's deliciously francophobic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, French is all the rage in this episode. (laughs) This has annoyed Edmund very much. Blackadder is always sort of the only one who's impervious to the fads that are going on around him. That's true of the explorers in Blackadder 2. It's true of the (laughs) francophilia in Blackadder the 3rd. And it's true of the Charlie Chaplin craze in Blackadder Goes Forth. And again, it goes back to the idea of him being cool. It's He's almost like, like a teenager who's, you know, over the popular music that's, you know, penetrating the zeitgeist. He's, he's always just above it all. And in that way, he kind of transcends time. Like he's, he's so modern. It's as if he has the perspective to realize that fads already look ridiculous in hindsight. I think that there's contempt for things because he's cool, but 
especially in the case of season three, like they were saying the documentary, there's there's a loneliness. Yeah. Uh, but but maybe they were talking more about Baldrick, but I think it applies to Edmund as well. He's stuck in this station and he's the smartest person in the room. Why, why does he have to be surrounded by freaking idiots? And, um, you know, mm-hmm. that probably makes it easier to look on everything with, with disdain. In fourth grade, I did not win any friends by wearing a Lion King shirt with Scar on it that said, I'm surrounded by idiots. Mm-hmm. I was very much a tiny black adder as a kid. <laughs> okay. I was an asshole. They sold that at the Disney store? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was for the it was for the kids who identified with villains and didn't want to make any friends, apparently. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, it's true. I hadn't thought about that. Edmund is lonely because he doesn't have any intellectual equals in really any of the shows, except for maybe with some, some guest stars who might come in. Like, Kate as Bob would have perhaps been an equal for him. I liked them together. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> Flash, you got you to give it to him. I, oh, you got to give it to him. But yeah, and then Baldrick, also very lonely because the only person that he hangs out with is his master who mistreats him. But I think kind of like with Manuel, I think he's basically a happy man in most of these seasons because his he takes such simple pleasures in like liking turnips. He doesn't need a lot in order to be okay. He just is perpetually in that mood he's in, which is like not quite miserable, not quite delighted. It, yeah. It's, it's very, very static. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, I don't worry about Baldrick the way I worry about Manuel. I wonder if that's partly just because of the historical context, because you can imagine an immigrant waiter being abused in his place of employment but Mm -hmm. you know someone who's living in the elizabethan age or someone who's a a serf or a servant to a servant to a servant it feels so long ago and it doesn't matter because they're all dead now anyway even if they weren't all murdered by ludwig and i can't believe you didn't watch that part (laughs) i did not but you know what? I would not want to see that sexy motherfucker Edmund with his throat slit open. I wish that I had kept a list of my favorite insults of his. The thing is, I would have ended up transcribing about half of the series if I had made a list of all of my favorite put-downs from Blackadder, all of my favorite extended metaphors and similes, uh, or all of my favorite Baldrick malapropisms, who truly is the king of malaprops. <laughs> I will just say... That season three contains my favorite Baldrick malapropism when he's talking about his novel after Blackadder has referred to his own novel, Edmund of Butler's Tale, as his magnum opus. He says, I've written a novel too, my lord, my magnificent octopus. (laughs) Every single character has such a distinct way of speaking and the playfulness with language in this show. I'm such a wordophile or linguophile, I guess. would be. I should probably know the word for what it is that I am as someone who loves words. But truly, it's this season is so... I think they're at the top of their game here, and especially with that dictionary episode and all of the fake words, the neologisms that Blackadder makes up in order to frustrate Dr. Johnson, who hasn't included such things as interfrastically and contrafibularities and these other things that he just effortlessly rattles off. It's, it's so smooth and so well done. I'm anaspeptic, phrasmotic, <laughs> even compunctuous to have caused you such pericombobulation. <laughs> And God, the scene where Baldrick is reciting his contributions to the dictionary. I've done C and D. Right, let's have it then. Right. Big blue wobbly thing that mermaids live in. (laughs) C. Yes. 
tiny misunderstanding still. <laughs> my hopes weren't high. No, and what about D? I'm quite pleased with dog. Yes, and your definition of dog is? Not a cat. <laughs> well, I love the relatability of having to pull an all-nighter for something. Oh, yes, absolutely. He's, he's got until Monday morning to rewrite the dictionary that he thinks Baldrick burned. Anyone who's been to college should be able to identify. And if you can't identify because you've got your work done on time, I don't like you very much. <laughs> yeah. And when he when he is in the dream, when I he dreams of waking up and um, Dr. Johnson comes back and says, I think it's an awful dictionary full of feeble definitions and ridiculous verbiage. I've come to ask you to chuck that damn thing in the fire. Are you sure? I've never been more sure of anything in my life, sir. I love you, Dr. Johnson, and I want to have your babies. <laughs> oh, sorry, excuse me, Dr. Johnson, but my Auntie Marjorie's just ar arrived. Baldrick, who gave you permission to turn into an Alsatian? <laughs> oh, God, it's a dream, isn't it? It's a bloody dream. <laughs> Dr. Johnson doesn't want us to burn his dictionary at all. <laughs> It's so good. And you know, Richard Curtis said that he doesn't like that scene. He regretted doing a dream sequence. And I was really? like, that was my favorite thing as a kid. It's so funny. It would be annoying if there was a dream sequence in every episode, but it's, since it's the only one in the entire Blackadder canon, unless you count the visions of Christmas past and future, but we'll get to that in a minute. It's so brilliant. It's such a funny convention to play with just the once. It's just zany enough. I I don't know. I disagree with uh, with Richard Curtis. Yeah, on no, I, I just, disagree. Just as you you did good, Richard. Just... Stop being so hard on yourself. You're perfect. Another fantastic little piece of wordplay is, what fun can I have with a woman that I can't have with you? And he says, I cannot conceive, sir. <laughs> That's fucking Shakespearean. I'm sorry. That's just the, the double me. I remember my mom having to explain that to me. And then I was like, ah, yes, that is clever. Mm -hmm. Well done. <laughs> I love in um, Duel and Duality when we have Stephen Fry showing up as uh, Wellington. Oh, yes, yes, And yes. Blackadder and Prince George get to switch places. Fantastic. I think it's a great episode. And it's the violence that I find the funniest is when I was gonna say when Stephen Fry gets to punch Prince George in the face and Hugh Laurie just goes flying. Oh yes, and I think it's also funny just knowing that the two of them were comedy partners. It's always really fun to watch people that you know have some sort of history or outside relationship outside of the thing it is that you're watching, mm -hmm. just beating the shit out of each other. I like it when I when comedy partners fight <laughs> yeah i do love that edmund finally gets to punch him but he doesn't punch him before wellington punches him which i think is that's true. very true to character he doesn't break the seal yeah but he he takes advantage once that kind of unspoken permission is there he's an opportunist even though george has never done anything wrong he's never abused edmund physically or emotionally because he's frankly not smart enough and i don't think has a mean bone in his body but it is still very satisfying and funny to watch blackadder take such glee in just beating the shit out of his boss oh hugh laurie takes so much punishment in that can i just briefly interject to say young hugh laurie bam what a babe that is all you can have him I will take uh, <laughs> caricature face Atkinson. Okay, well, Be because I um I I think that Hugh Laurie as Doctor House is like the foxiest. Interesting. So, See, I don't yeah. I don't like him as American. I to me he will always be George. I I don't like, I like as him a, young he, British and silly. That's that's my type. I don't know. Doctor House is it's it's, it's only Doctor House that I like make an exception for when it comes to the stupid phony American accent. I don't know why. Interesting. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, young Hugh Laurie. Oof. 
Foxy, Foxy. Although <laughs> I will, I will fight you for season four, Lord Flashheart. We can have a duel. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just want to snuggle up with that mustachioed black adder again. I want to be that okay, nurse well then, in the. Okay, there's hospital. no conflict here at all. That's fantastic. No. Oh my god. Yes. I thought I was gonna have to go full cat fight. N- no, not at all. Not here. <laughs> Shall we move on to Black Adder's Christmas Carol? I loved Black Adder's Christmas Carol. It was really sweet. This is one of my favorite Christmas specials ever. So this was a one-off Dickensian spoof that aired at Christmas time, 1988. Uh, it starred all the usual suspects in their same roles. I won't list them all again. But it additionally featured Robbie Coltrane as the Spirit of Christmas, Miriam Margulies as Queen Victoria, and Jim Broadbent as Prince Albert. It's a brilliant inversion of the original, where instead of having Ebenezer Scrooge turn from a cold-hearted miser into a generous, giving man after being visited by three spirits in the night and seeing visions of Christmas past, present, and future. In this case, we have the very kind-hearted and easily taken advantage of Ebenezer Blackadder, yeah. who is the perhaps the only nice person in his entire family tree throughout all of history. And then Robbie Coltrane, as the spirit of Christmas, comes and visits him in the night uh, just to say hello. There's really nothing about him that needs to, to have his ways changed. Oh, you're a good boy. And then just for fun, he shows him some of his less kind ancestors. And then we get two new bits from the Elizabethan era and the Georgian era where we see Blackadder being a shit around Christmas time. And then by seeing how their evil schemes work out for them in the end, uh, Ebenezer changes his ways. And that's when you want to bang him. I mean, I, I just like the the Victorian garb is quite sexy. And also I like his hair best. Yeah. In that. I'm not a big fan of facial hair. No, he looks hot there too. Specifically when he comes down like really nicely dressed on Christmas Day after he's made the transition from good guy to bastard. Mm. There's just that shot and it's like, oh, hello. Damn. All yeah. Right. Mm. That too. <laughs> mm. So Robbie Coltrane, many people will know him as Hagrid from the Harry Potter movies. And I just want to say, I don't know if you do this too when you read books, but whenever I read books, I like to cast actors or people that I know in the roles. Yes. So because I had watched so much of Blackadder's Christmas Carol as a kid, I was picturing Robbie Coltrane in this Christmas special as Hagrid. And I was very pleased when they announced the casting for the Harry Potter movies, and it was the same person that I had been picturing. Oh, that's brilliant. That's never happened to me. Yeah, I will say there was another bit of Blackadder casting that I had in my head when I was reading the books that I'm sad that they did not go with, which was Rick Mayle as Squadron Commander Lord Flashheart as Gilderoy Lockhart. (gasps) How fucking great would that have been? Let me introduce you to your new defense against the dark arts teacher. It's me, hooray! No offense to Kenneth Branagh, but like, would that not have been the best? I want to go back in time and make that happen. All offense to Kenneth Branagh, because I think that is the one funny line in Blackadder back and forth. I just... I think that would have been much better casting, and I wish that they had paid attention to the 12-year-old brainwaves that I was sending them at the time. It would have. Oh, my God. I know, but at least, oh well. at least they got It would have been a right. very different movie, though, if you put Rick Mayall in Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
One more thing that I want to say about the Christmas Carol before we move on. I don't know which version of it you watched online, but there's another dead dog thing in keeping with the theme of how all of our favorite British comedies have dead dogs. Uh, Is this something else that was after the credits that I didn't see? Because I swear to God. No, no, no. See, the reason that I asked, I'm not sure which version you saw, is that I remembered when I watched it, there's a line when they're talking about the high infant mortality rate causing the baby Jesus in the nativity play needing to be recast with a dog. Yeah, that was dark as fuck. Yes, that's already, that's the dark part is that children are dying, so then you need to have a dog. But then there's a line that was cut from subsequent broadcasts and that wasn't part of the DVD release, but it was on the VHS that I had because I remembered when I read about it, I was like, oh yeah, that wasn't in the video that I watched this week, but I distinctly remember hearing it as a kid was... When Blackadder says, oh, dear, that must have been very upsetting for the children. And then Baldrick says, oh, no, they loved it. They want us to do another one at Easter. They want to see us nail up the dog, <gasps> which is really funny and really dark. It's no darker than infant mortality, right? Wait, they cut the dead dog, but not the dead baby? I know. Fucked up, right? This I is guess something the... that I always have a major problem with. Obviously, I'm not okay with dogs or cats or whatever animal suffering a horrible death. No. But whenever there's like a person who goes, oh my god, I hated that movie because the dog died. And it wasn't specifically a dog movie, which I also oh. hate, but that's completely different. It's like, oh, but you didn't <laughs> no, mind no, it when here. X, Y, and Z human being yes, also- people have more empathy for animals yeah. than for humans. It's, it's pretty terrible. I recently had a conversation with somebody about a fish called Wanda and they said, oh, I can't see that because I know that dogs die. And I was like, yes, but it's the fucking funniest thing in the world. <laughs> Nobody kills dogs in a funny way like the Brits. They are they are masters at it. We got to bring that over here, man. I don't know. I want all these <laughs> fucking American bitches to watch dogs die. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, shall we go to the most serious of all the, the yeah of all of the series? Before we move on, do you want to know what yes. I found when I typed in Blackadder porn? Um, yes, I do. Okay, so I didn't find a Blackadder porn parody. I didn't expect you to. But dude, there is an author of uh, not quite erotic literature. It's just called a porn comics. On, on a website called Porn Comics. <laughs> There's an author who goes by Blackadder. <laughs> I hope their real name is Gertrude Perkins. <laughs> okay, who has written such masterpieces as Dick Girls? <laughs> oh, come on, at least have it be Blackadder themed. Like, no. I don't know, sex and sexuality or something like that. Also, um, several volumes of Monster Sex. A great one just called Santa is Coming. That's disappointing because I was thinking earlier, like I I knew that we would have this conversation. I was like, I bet there's no Blackadder porn. Would I even want to see a Blackadder porn? Probably not. And then I remembered Lord Flashheart. And I was like, I definitely want to see World War One era Lord Flashheart just having sex with everyone. No, nothing, nothing even close. Damn. Which Missed is, opportunity, which is so guys. Upsetting. We, if we worked in I the know. adult industry, we could rule the world. And by rule the world, I mean probably have about twelve people out there who really appreciate what we do. <laughs> I know, but seriously. All right. Season oh, season four. Spiel, spiel it, girl. Okay, so now after that diversion into porn land, we come to the most solemn and I think the best of these seasons. 
which is Blackadder Goes Forth, which takes place in the trenches of World War I. It aired in autumn of 1989 and starred Rowan Atkinson as Captain Edmund Blackadder, Tony Robinson as Private Baldrick, Hugh Laurie as Lieutenant George, Stephen Fry as General Melchett, and Tim McInerney as Captain Darling, a completely different character who has absolutely nothing to do with Lord Percy. And thank God, because I think that he's the best. I think that everyone is actually their best in this season. At their best, right? I completely agree. I kind of feel like Melchit in season two is a little bit of a waste of Stephen Fry. He doesn't get to do too much. What's interesting is that, you know, obviously Blackadder and Baldrick are the constants throughout all of the seasons, but the other three are, are sort of in constant rotation. And this is where... They've all kind of traded roles, and it's their most successful. So early on, you have Percy as the lovable idiot. And then you have Hugh Laurie take over that role with George. And that's just perfect, because he's just as funny as Prince George, but that same sort of affable, enthusiastic, hurrah sort of energy. It's just so sweet and so goddamn endearing in someone who is low status and, and you know, guaranteed to die (laughs) I mean even though you know Prince George also dies but it's not the same thing it's just so effective he plays the lovable buffoon so perfectly and then meanwhile his previous role of the idiot in charge gets filled by Stephen Fry and Stephen Fry has that that gravitas from beyond his years where he was only about 30 when this aired but he totally I don't question that he is like a 60 something general even though obviously like his his skin looks way better than any actual 60 year old he he completely pulls it off he's very convincing as this person who's decades older than the actor was at the time and just his whole vibe he's he's got a very sort of dignified air about him always but then that just makes it all the more hilarious when he says things that are completely fucking insane mm-hmm. and then meanwhile percy becomes captain darling, darling! and he's filling darling. the melchit role of the smug sycophantic rival of equal status who he's always sort of butting heads with and he even manages to make him incredibly sympathetic. That last episode, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but God, my heart breaks for every last one of them. He's so good. But, but even before that, he's just so funny. With that, that twitch, it, he just completely loses himself in the character and is so much more convincing, I think, as Darling than as Percy. I do have a soft spot in my heart for Percy, but George completely eclipses him for me in seasons three and four, so I don't miss him. I think that Darling is absolutely the best use of Tim McInerney. He's a really good actor, and this is, they're all just in top form in this season. I completely agree, and damn, I mean, Rowan Atkinson, it's just a master class, really, because like we said, to be the funny straight man and for him to have three completely different personas in, well, four, I'm not even thinking about season one, but as far as three completely different personas for the funny straight man, like who the fuck else can even do that? And I think that this Edmund is like also the the kind of best Edmund. He's he's somehow low energy, but, but very riveting to watch. Yes. And um, I think that maybe it's because his surroundings are the most m- miserable, obviously, yeah. and, and claustrophobic is that you're, you're, you're with him more than 
ever mm-hmm. and you empathize with him more than ever you're just rooting for him so much by the end there yeah. god it's unfair because there are five other like fantastic episodes before you even get to the very end and we'll talk about but it. it's like i can't get that fucking six episode out of my head it's, so it's really a masterpiece it's one of the best series finales of all time i would say but even even the rest of the episodes as you said like it's still i think the best work that this team ever did it's I know. And and to go from the beginning, to go from that first season to this, it's like, it's whoa. It's a remarkable transformation. Mm-hmm. And this is the most sympathetic of the Blackadders by far. Because again, he's he's fallen so far. He's not really in a position of power. And unlike in all of the other seasons, there's really no hope here. You know, he's always been no. a cynic. But in this case, he's the only one, again, with him being the only sane person in a barrel full of crazies, he's the only one who knows that they're all going to die there. And he doesn't just know in the last episode. He knows it from the beginning, and that's why he is so goddamn desperate to get out. And his schemes aren't out of any sort of selfish desire to advance himself socially. And this is, in a way, the highest stakes out of all of the seasons, even though they're all high stakes, and even though he does, as I said, end up being killed in two of the other seasons as well. Especially in season two, I think, there's always the the threat of being decapitated on the whim of an unpredictable monarch sort of hanging in the air. But you trust mm-hmm. that he's cunning enough to be able to get out of it, but there's no... He has no power to go up against the crazy general in this completely pointless and insane war. He has the least to gain and everything to lose. In the others, he can at least try to trick others into giving him social status or money. There's some sort of hope that he can get out of the situation. But here, it's really just a desperate scramble to survive, and he ultimately fails. And it's truly tragic to witness. Piggybacking on what you just said, there was always, you know, in the case of, like, season two, the threat of being beheaded Mm -hmm. by this very childish, you know, strange queen. But the monarchy was something completely different by the time World War I came around. You, You didn't necessarily just have, like, one crazy person who was there since, you know, age 10 or whatever randomly picking people to behead you still had a king but um this is when an entire government is just sacrificing you and an entire country is is sending you to die and the rest of the world is kind of in on it too everyone has let you down and it's for the sake of this ideal that you disagree with you might be a pissed off Blackadder in season two and three, mm-hmm. but you're not being sacrificed for the sake of this weird thing that's that's happening that you have no control over. No, it's true. So it's a lot darker than just a crazy Miranda Richardson saying, you know, do this or, or you die. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. And producer John Lloyd said that in season four, you know, they're in a situation where there's only two ways to escape. One is forward to the German machine guns. The other is backwards to the British firing squad. And you feel the weight of those stakes, even though you don't truly feel them until the very end. Again, there's there's no hope for any sort of happiness here, really. It's just, they're, they're all just kind of waiting for death from the beginning. And it's this unspoken thing, or not entirely unspoken, because Blackadder actually says it quite a lot. And the others don't listen or don't care. And the, the reality of their situation doesn't hit them until probably the final four or five minutes. Yeah. But let's let's talk about let's talk about the other the fun stuff that leads up to that incredibly devastating finale. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we we've said that this was 
this was the highest stakes season, not just for the characters, but also for the people who were making it. Because World War One, it's a hundred years ago now. It feels very ancient to us, but at the time that it was made, you know, there there were people who were alive from that period of time and they wanted to do this very respectfully while also making fun of the insanity of war in general and this war in particular while honoring the the sacrifices that the brave soldiers made and i think that they did an excellent job of towing that line uh this is really gallows humor at its finest because they it is. they managed to completely skewer all of the dark and ridiculous aspects of it and make you laugh at the same time. It's it's just genius. One of the first really great ones is when Melchit and Darling go visit them in their trench. Are you looking forward to the big push? No, sir, I'm absolutely terrified. <laughs> the healthy humor of the honest Tommy. <laughs> Don't worry, my boy. If you should falter, remember that Captain Darling and I are behind you. About 35 miles behind you. <laughs> Yes, that's fantastic. There's so much brilliant social commentary in this. The whole season is very smartly anti-war while being pro-soldier, which to me are one and the same thing. You kind of <laughs> you kind of can't have mm, one without the yeah. other. In the episode Corporal Punishment, Blackadder is court-martialed for shooting a pigeon who is also the beloved pet of General Melted and his name is Speckled Jim. And I just want to say that Melchit mentions that the pigeon has been with him since he was a nipper. But he's clearly in his 60s and pigeons live for six years. So that's a that's an old pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> or Melchit's a lot younger than he lets Melchit on. probably has no idea. He probably... Melchit's pretty insane. And God, I love the mix-up that happens when he sends for the finest legal mind in England and accidentally enlist George as his defense and George as a lawyer is just one of the funniest moments in the whole thing. But it's it's great that Melchit is judging the trial. The charge before us is that the Flanders pigeon murderer <laughs> did deliberately, callously and with beastliness of forethought murder a lovely innocent pigeon <laughs> and disobeyed some orders as well. <laughs> is this true? Perfectly true, sir. I was there. Oh, and George's defense is, is calling Darling, who is the prosecution, to the stand. Leaving aside the incident in question, would you think of Captain Blackadder as the sort of man who would usually ignore orders? Yes, I would. Ah, um, are you sure? I, I was rather banking on you saying no there. It's... Oh, good. Because, of no, course, was, George was, that is that so stupid good. that he would call the prosecution to the defense stand. Also, when he tells Baldrick, deny everything, and then Baldrick, <laughs> you know, is your name Baldrick? No, it's just like Manuel's, I know nothing. Poor Edmund, he has to depend on the biggest idiots in history to be on his this side. This is such a good Baldrick season, though. I love this season's Baldrick so this much. This is definitely, as I said, all of the characters are really at their best here. And Baldrick, you know, he's he's one of the two consistent threads throughout the whole show. And yet I feel like we've barely talked about him. True. And by that, I mean we've barely mentioned the actor, Tony Robinson. And uh, I think that that's crazy because he's just such an essential part of the show. And we've, oh, yeah. you know, we've given a lot of time to the other members of the, the secondary characters in the cast and we've 
done a lot of fawning over Rowan Atkinson, some of us more graphically than others. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, you know, I want to give credit where credit is due because Baldrick is such a fantastic character. And Tony Robinson just inhabits the character so fully that it's like you don't even notice his acting, which I think is the mark of really great acting. Like the best acting is the kind that doesn't draw attention to itself. You just completely take for granted that he is that character. You know, it's... I, I think I just we just need to take a moment to like acknowledge the stunningly subtle performance that is really I think the glue that holds this whole series together because yes Blackadder is the center of the show but but Baldrick is absolutely the heart of the show especially in season four and I think that this is the season where he's really transformed into a kind of everyman mm-hmm. and it's so affecting again I keep wanting to talk about the last episode but I think that we should save it but my god he is just heartbreaking in this yeah. yeah. Oh God. Okay. Well, um, major star. That was my other favorite episode as a kid. I fucking love that. This was another great example of you know hilarious, terrible drag where everybody but a specific person can tell that is simply a man in a dress. Yes. So in order to boost morale, Blackadder is called upon to direct some sort of entertainment review with the ultimate aim of then being transferred to London with this show. And so then that would be his way out of the trenches. So he throws everything into it. There's Baldrick, who is doing an impression of Charlie Chaplin, and his impression consists of him balancing a slug on his upper lip to look like a mustache. Yes. To which Melted then says, oh, I enjoyed the slug balancer, which is fantastic. (laughs) Slug fell off a couple of times, but can't have everything. And then, of course, we have Lieutenant George as the lovely Georgina. It's very obviously a man in drag, although he's he's pretty he's pretty pretty. <laughs> well, when he first comes out wearing the dress and he just says, "I feel, I feel fantastic,", fantastic. <laughs> he loves it so much. He really commits to being Georgina, and then Melchad falls in love with him from the audience. And he commits to the point that he agrees to go on a date with Melchit and then says yes when Melchit proposes. It's fantastic. He says, oh, the the music, the moonlight, the bushy mustache. He just gets carried away. It's very Some Like It Hot, and it's just perfect. It's so goddamn funny. Except I can sort of understand Jack Lemmon's motivation for saying yes because the old man's supposed to be very rich, but I really don't understand... Why George says yes to Melchet, except for the fact that he's just so taken away with being Georgina. Yes, and also he's just so stupid that he he kind of believes that he is. I mean, he, he, like I said, how each character through the seasons evolves. He's still an idiot, just like Prince George. He's still got the oblivious privilege, but in this case, also has a heart of gold. Yeah, he's much nicer. He and Baldrick are really the true innocence of this season, they're like children, mm-hmm. and Blackadder's like the exasperated father, or rather uncle, who has been placed in charge of these orphan children that he doesn't particularly like, and we never get to the heartwarming part of the movie where he actually begins to love them. <laughs> Although- He's the exasperated dilf. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Although, did we talk about how in this season, Blackadder- is the softest that he's ever been. Yeah, he is. He's still extremely sarcastic and and will insult George and Baldrick a lot, but he he's not physically violent very often. I think maybe he punches Baldrick once. Yeah. But it's not the same. He doesn't threaten to, you know, torture him with a pencil or anything. He's weary 
without being contemptuous. Yeah. Everything just comes from him being so sick of being here and being stuck with these two people because, as you said, it's a very claustrophobic situation for him to be in and he's been stuck there for years and he just desperately wants to save his own hide and every one of his schemes to do so keeps failing. And so he takes it out on these two idiots that he's stuck with, but he doesn't delight in torturing them or in making fun of them or humiliating them. It's just... He's just really in a bad situation and dealing with it as best he can. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, and then we've got Private Plane, where we have the triumphant return of of Lord Flashheart looking fine as. Oh, my God. So in this episode, they join the Royal Flying Corps um, because it's going to get them out of the trenches. And more importantly, they've heard it told that they would only have to work for 20 minutes per day. And so then when they eventually, you know, go into their training, they learn that no, the 20 minutes is actually the average life expectancy of a new pilot. And and then, you know, when when they go up in the plane and, and they're shot down and they get kidnapped by the, the German aide Edmondson, uh-huh. the punishment is to be taken to a convent where they're going to teach the girls home, home economics. economics. <laughs> and then Lord Flashheart comes to rescue and them and that's no longer ideal. It's like, no, I, I, I want to be taken to Germany. I'll teach the girls home economics. That'll get me out of this fucking war. That was heartbreaking. So close and yet so far. There's so many near misses in this. And and for as for as wonderful as it is that again the the British making fun of Europeans and we've got Ed Edmondson being like yet another German with a stupid accent, mm-hmm. I love when British comedians are also able to make fun of British humor. Oh, yes, and Ed Edmondson <laughs> has that fantastic monologue when he's like, "How lucky you are, English, to find the toilet so amusing," <laughs> and just talks all about how yeah. like the Brits are obsessed with toilet humor. That was so wonderful. Oh, totally. And then also. Again, because you know that he and Rick are comedy partners, IRL. It's so funny when Rick shoots him and says, what a puff. That's a great. (laughs) And also, I really fucking love whenever Lord Flashheart punches anybody. Me too. It's so funny and also a little hot. And can I just say that training sequence, one of my favorite little chunks of not just the show, but all of sitcoms. What's so great about this is that it's five lines in a row that are all laughs and they all build on each other. So you have uh, Lord Flashheart saying, The first thing to remember is always treat your kite like you treat your woman. <laughs> how, how do you mean, sir? Do you mean, um, do you mean take her home at the weekend to meet your mother? <laughs> no, I mean get inside her five times a day and take her to heaven and back. <laughs> I'm beginning to see why the suffragette movement want the vote. Hey, hey, any bird who wants to chain herself to my railings and suffer a jet movement gets my vote. Oh my god, it's so good. I love that. Five fucking jokes in a row. That's a quintuple. I mean, he can... (laughs) He later claims in the episode that he can give multiple orgasms to the furniture just by sitting on it. That character in this show can give me multiple laughgasms just by... (laughs) <laughs> fucking brilliant. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's perfect that Lord Flashheart is just so entirely over the top and like nymphomaniacal and masculine that when he makes the jokes about the suffragettes chaining themselves, it doesn't bother me because it's just, it's a oh, joke. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is just a joke. It's really funny. Yeah. And the thing is that again, even though it is making light of, you know, a, a serious struggle for women's equal rights in history, 
I don't think that he would be anti-suffragette. I think he'd be like, yeah, let, let women vote. Like, he'd probably run for office and everyone would vote for him because he'd get the women's vote. And also, again, yeah. with the, the idea of flash art as being a... Maybe feminist is too strong a word, but I mentioned earlier that there's something nice about how he doesn't discriminate against women based on their looks. There's also something... He he understands consent. He says the, the phrase, if you want something, take it. But then... When he he says to Bob, Bob, I want something. And she says, take it. And she's very clearly into it. Like, he would never sexually assault anybody. No. First of all, I don't think any woman would be capable of saying no to him. But I think that I think that he's <laughs> aroused by female arousal, specifically responding to him. So, right. so yeah, he's he's a little more woke than maybe uh, maybe <laughs> <what> intended. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear that. Yeah. Oh, God, he's cute. Oh, my God, he's so sexy. It would have been so easy, though, to, to overuse no, him. No, I know. It's perfect don't. that he just shows up those two times. I Mm, my god mm-hmm. world war one era flash art is so yummy <laughs> he's definitely my crush for this show you can have edmund i did not expect that man i can't really emphasize that enough that i did not expect to watch blackadder and be like oh my god Rowan <laughs> atkinson i want to fuck you hard <laughs> if you want me to cut that just say the word we should have like a safe word for when our lusting after these british comedy icons goes too far <laughs> i don't think he'd mind well there you go <laughs> but he's he's very sexy in general hospital. general hospital yes that's that's true and that's another example where he finds not love but lust with someone who is his intellectual equal even though she is a duplicitous spy you get the sense that again relieving his loneliness and his sense that he's the only not just sane but smart person in the world he's only able to find like his intellectual equivalence with women there's bob in season two and then there's the spy in season four i was really happy for him like i wrote in my notes it just says blackadder gets laid in like all capitals yeah. <laughs> my favorite two lines in that episode are melchit lines and they just point out uh-huh. the the absurdity of war there's when when blackadder sarcastically guesses what the plans are would that be the plan to continue with total slaughter until everyone's dead except field marshal haig lady haig and their tortoise alum <laughs> And then the other one, it's so good because it's so, it, it points out what's so problematic about any kind of nationalism and not pulling back and seeing the big picture in any sort of international conflict. So you see, Blackadder, Field Marshal Haig is most anxious to eliminate all these German spies. Filthy Hun weasels fighting their dirty underhand war. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of our spies, splendid fellows, brave heroes, and it's so funny. And there are people who who do feel that way. I mean, there are a lot of people in America, God knows, who who don't understand that other countries also have human beings as citizens with feelings and families and hopes and dreams. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm being all puffy, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but but truly, it's it's really staggering to me how many people don't understand that their side is not the only side. No. Politicians don't care about people. They don't care about the civilians of other countries. And um, they pretend they care about the beautiful, innocent babies. But but that's about it. They really it. only care about the beautiful, innocent dogs because fuck babies, right? Yeah. <laughs> Every single season is built around a very hierarchical thing. And I think that, I mean, obviously the British class system is still a pretty tricky beast. It's it's not quite as rigid as it was back in the, you know, days of, of the feudal system. But I think that setting it in the military was extremely smart because it's all very official. 
you know yeah there's not really any hope for any of these people advancing within these six short episodes just like there's not really any hope of of anybody transcending their class except through marriage or some sort of miracle in the other seasons does that bring us to it dude is it time i think it does yeah goodbye i have a page of notes on the final season and then they just kind of stop and then i have this note that just says this is giving me anxiety and it's so true you know in the beginning of the episode they establish that they're finally going over the top tomorrow which means they're all going to die and it's nothing they haven't already said yeah it's nothing they haven't said in previous episodes but for whatever reason there's suddenly tension and i find it really miraculous that it's it's one thing for a tv show to surprise you with the finale because it's a genuine thing that you did not see fucking coming at all yeah but it's another thing to really surprise the fuck out of your audience by just having the show follow its natural progression that they've made no secret of whatsoever because it's the shift in tone again there's a high body count in the season finales of one and two for those of us who watched to completion sorry last last dig at you (laughs) but um, no it's okay you saw my face on that one i i was ready for it (laughs) but yeah it's uh in fact i I don't think that I had ever seen this episode before this week either because I I rewatched my favorites as a kid over and over again but there were chunks of all of the other seasons that I that I hadn't seen and this was one that I'm sure that as a kid I wouldn't have found it funny and therefore wouldn't have watched it a lot so maybe maybe I did watch it once and then never visited it again and but like I watched it 3 times this week it's such a masterpiece and my mom had said, oh, you're watching Blackadder. It's it's one of her favorite shows. And she said, the ending always makes me cry. And I was like, oh, let me guess. They're in a war. They're all going to die. Whatever. They die and all the other stuff, too. Like, I, I expected that going in, but I didn't expect how suddenly serious it would turn in, like, I think it's the last 10 minutes because, you know, these are half-hour episodes. The first 20 minutes are all pretty much a continuous scene. They're outside, and then they go inside, And then the rest of it is all just one scene and it's sort of, there's not anything that really happens plot wise. They're just having these, these very realistic talks and they're kind of quietly awaiting their own deaths. And you learn a bit of the background of George and Baldrick's history with enlisting and, and when they all met and it's all very sincere. And there are these, these little monologues that would feel totally at home within a serious dramatic play about world war one soldiers. I know. And then they'd be undercut by a funny line from Blackadder to relieve the tension, but, but not in a way that, that undercuts them and makes them meaningless. It's not as if those are setups to a punch. It's just that it would be completely, emotionally I mean it it is still gut-wrenching but it would be completely unwatchable if it was all just a half hour of that there are still some incredibly funny jokes and some funny lines which I hope we will talk about no there's still one of my favorites is uh when Baldrick is reciting his war poetry hear the words I sing war's a horrid thing so I sing 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 (laughs) ding-a-ling-a-ling Well, it started badly, and it, it tailed off a little in the middle, and, and the less said about the end, the better. But, uh, but apart from that, excellent. So at the beginning, they learn that they're going to be going over the top, and so 
Edmund's last ditch effort to get the fuck out of this and save his own life is to pretend that he's insane mm-hmm. and um, you know they'll they'll let him go home on like a health leave and so yes. the plan is to put his underpants on his head and stick pencils up his nose which is a fantastic image it's a fantastic image because at first it just sort of seems oh haha ha, how, how silly of these boys but then they proceed to have the first real serious fucked up conversation of the episode where they talk about how they ended up in the war in the first place yeah. and Blackadder is saying these really incredible erudite things with the underwear on his head and the pencil stuck up his nose yes and it's kind of um there are stretches of time where i just got used to it oh i just got used to it and heard only what he was saying and then i'd go oh wow you you've still you've still got that get up on but when he says but the real reason for the whole thing was that it was just too much effort not to have a war by gum, this is interesting. I always loved history. A battle of Hastings, Henry VIII and his six knives, all that. <laughs> you see, Baldrick, in order to prevent war in Europe, two super blocks developed. Us, the French and the Russians on one side, and the Germans and Austro-Hungary on the other. The idea was to have two vast opposing armies, each acting as the other's deterrent. That way, there could never be a war. But this is a sort of a war, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's right. You see, there was a tiny flaw in the plan. What was that, sir? It was bollocks. <laughs> that was, I think, maybe the first time I went, okay, pause everything. I need to, I need to rewind. Yeah. This is, this is going to get incredible, isn't it? And I think that's when my anxiety started kicking yeah, in. Yeah, no, it, it's got such incredible insight, and he's delivering this fantastic history lesson while wearing underpants on his head with two pencils shoved up his nose and it's it's this fantastic juxtaposition of the, the most serious possible topic which is this war with an unimaginably high cost and high death count it's it's deeply tragic and it's amazing the line that they were able to walk between the the absurdity and the satire and also the very real human cost and um the humanity of it all baldrick's monologue about the day he enlisted yes that fucked me up so much I thought it was going to be such fun, too. We all did. Joining the local regiment and everything. Turnip Street Workhouse Pals. It was great. I'll never forget it. It was the first time I ever felt really popular. Everyone was cheering, throwing flowers. Some girl even come up and kissed me. Oh my god, my fucking Because everyone's heart broke cheering for these young men who are signing up to go do this to fight for their country. I was like, oh. It was very, it really humanized the whole thing for me. And I think that's the moment where it's not just, oh, and here's another backdrop for Blackadder. It's like, oh, they're commenting on something that happened. Absolutely. I mean, my heart breaks for every single character on this, except for Melchit, who represents the establishment, putting people in harm's way without really taking into consideration the cost. Yeah. And then, oh my God. So next what happens is that Melchit sends Darling to the front which is just devastating it's a nightmarish scene watching darling beg to stay but uh, I, I don't want to to leave me <laughs> i appreciate that darling but damn it i'll just have to enter berlin without someone to carry my feathery hat no sir i don't want to go into battle without me i know I think he does such a good job in that scene where he knows that he is supposed to appear grateful for this because allegedly it's what he's always wanted. And then 
you know, Melchit's funny insanity suddenly becomes a really pernicious sort of thing. Oh, and yeah. yeah, when when you see Darling kind of start to crack, like knowing mm-hmm. that he's he's going to have to admit this isn't what I want. I'm not a soldier. Yeah. Like it's really weird. It happens that, really that quickly. Scene, Darling is of sort of funny source of comedy and he's a good foil for Blackadder throughout the whole rest of the season. But I think it's very smart that they humanize him even before that moment, you would still already feel bad for him. But the fact that he's staying up, he can't sleep because he's he's worried about them. He actually, unlike Melchett, he cares about the human cost of this maneuver. Can't sleep either, eh? Uh, no, sir. Thinking about the push, sir. Hoping the Bosch will forget to set their alarm clocks, oversleep, and still be in their pajamas when our boys turn up. That's the single sweetest, kindest, most human thing that he says up until that point. And then that already makes you like him. And then it's just gutting when Melchit sends off the the person that he's just described as like, you know, an illegitimate son to him. I know. (laughs) And then that shot, that shot with the light coming in and the the shadow of the driver. It's 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 terrifying. It's really unlike anything that they do cinematographically in the the whole rest of the series and in that final sequence once darling has gone to join them blackadder takes on this calmness he knows that they're all going to die he knows that they need somebody to to be strong for them oh even even before that another moment that broke my heart so so darling has already broken my heart by this point and baldrick has broken my heart at this point when george who has been so gung-ho about it from the get-go and so excited when he says, This is brave, splendid, and noble. Sir? Yes, Lieutenant? I'm scared, sir. I'm scared too, sir. I mean, I'm the last of the tiddly-winking leapfroggers from the golden summer of 1914. I don't want to die. Really, not over-keen on dying at all, sir. That's just one of those world-breaking moments where, you know, everything... Oh God, it, it's it's just heart shattering. I can't even. I'm I'm using. I'm repeating myself with the words that I'm using. But this this episode is just God. It, it's so powerful, and it breaks your heart in a million different ways that you're not expecting at all. Because every single character does something that is slightly out of character, but still believable because they are the most real and fully developed three dimensional human beings out of all of the series. I think it's these moments of vulnerability that you don't always kind of get to see in these great epics or in in movies where they say, think of everything veterans have done. It's like, but we but why don't we get to see that these people were just young men who were, were scared shitless by what they had to go do? And I think there's a very human element that maybe these days, maybe I'm projecting all of this because of some movies that I'm watching for, for my work. I work in advertising. You know, I, I feel like they will just do everything they can to sort of not have us be met face to face with the terror. Mm-hmm. They're free to mention terror, but they will not show us the human moments of terror, except for maybe, ooh, there's blood on the battlefield. Let's no, all marvel true. at the blood and get really excited by this violence. Yeah, no, it, it definitely it glamorizes it. And this does the exact opposite. As we said, this is such a claustrophobic season because it's really just these five people. And the fact that they can represent the deaths of millions of soldiers in this war by just showing four whom you've grown to care about over six short half hours, most of which you're laughing at them. And, oh, God, it's it's so, it's so fucking well done. 
Well, yeah, when it's time for them to go and they all line up and all the shooting stops. Listen, our guns have stopped. You don't think? Maybe the war's over. Maybe it's peace. Well, hurrah! The big knobs have got round the table and yanked the iron out of the fire. Thank God. We lived through it. The Great War, 1914 to 1917. Hip, hip! <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a, that's a grim little laugh from the studio audience. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, what a beautiful use of dramatic irony when the audience knows the history. It's, it's so powerful. And someone on the DVD commentary... Uh, pointed out they said that that shot of them all in profile looks almost like a war memorial huh the composition of that the the thing is that every single character changes baldrick becomes more than just a a big dumb dodo he has unexpected depth george who has been very enthusiastic about the war it shows that he's scared darling who's just been kind of a sycophantic little shit shows his humanity and then I mean, I guess Melted is the only one who doesn't show any sort of uh, evolution. But, but then Blackadder, our feeling about Melchet changes. We hate that is him. that is very true. And then Blackadder, whose whole thing throughout series two through four has been, you know, cool and unflappable and sarcastic and mean and cynical and hilarious. That scene, he doesn't make a single joke at anyone's expense. He doesn't say anything unkind, even when Darling, like he could. He would completely lose the audience if he did, but he could gloat over this man who's been sentenced to death along with him. But instead, he chooses to be kind. He says, Mm -hmm. how are you doing, darling? And the audience laughs because it's the last time that we'll hear the joke made at the expense of his funny name, which is a a fantastic running gag throughout the whole season. But, like, he he acts sort of like, maybe that is the moment of transformation where, like, he becomes the loving father, or at least the tolerant father to these charges that he never asked for. Yeah. Oh, God. And then that final sequence. Did you hear the evolution of that final sequence? They got one take, and it really wasn't very good. <laughs> and, yes. and they were going to go again. Yet, And Rowan Atkinson said, like, no, that was terrifying. We're not going to do it. <laughs> yes. And John Lloyd was just panicking, like, oh, my God, this is this was so such a great episode, and now it's not going to work without this ending. And it's such a great example of serendipity when something that you thought was going to work out doesn't pan out the way you thought it would. And so then you're forced to come up with something even better. So that was a very collaborative moment in the post-production department where the editor said, well, what if we just slow down the footage? And then the assistant editor said, oh, well, what if we slow down the sound as well? And then maybe it was a PA who, like, they they all sort of contributed something else, like, okay, well, then let's have it fade to black and white. And then it fades out to to the field of poppies. And then there's the, the bird song is the final heartbreaking little like i'm gonna cry just talking about it it's so it's so well done and it it's god damn it <laughs> you say something stephanie well i i was gonna say that i finally broke the fuck down when blackadder says who would have noticed another madman around here good luck everyone no yeah oh my god we didn't even talk I'm about that i'm actually crying i have a plan sir really boric a cunning and subtle one yes sir as cunning as a fox who's just been appointed Professor of Cunning at Oxford University. Yes, sir. On the signal, company will advance. Well, I'm afraid it'll have to wait. Whatever it was, I'm sure it was better than my plan to get out of this by pretending to be mad. I mean, who would have noticed another madman around here? Good luck, everyone. It's so heartbreaking, and it's such a searing indictment, and also such a sort of... It is kind of like a, a cool, cynical, Blackadder-esque thing to say, but it's also deeply tragic. 
it's very observant and very defeatist and heartbreak. It's a million things all rolled into one. And, and the fact that the final words of the episode and the whole series is good luck, everyone. And then it's such a beautiful and simple ending when, when it fades out and and it's just the, the field. It sort of, it places it like in the continuum of history and time and how there were these millions of people who died in this great conflict and and the world keeps going on it keeps going without us i'm feeling like you know that that moment that carmela in the sopranos yes thank you (laughs) (laughs) thanks for sharing your brain with me Steph. oh my god no it's true it's such a beautiful way to conclude not just this story about the great war but but this whole ridiculous saga going back to the very beginning it's we're all just a part of history and we i i can't i can't articulate it any better than just just watch this i I really hope that anybody who's listening to this has seen this show because otherwise we've spoiled everything but uh, watch it again and cry oh damn yeah I feel like we have to talk about back and forth, maybe, even though it's kind of a a disappointment compared to... You know what? Kind of thank God for back and forth in a way. Yeah. (laughs) It would have been cool to go see it in um, the context in which it was, you know, intended to be seen at the Mm -hmm. Dome. Were there any highlights for you? I enjoyed having Blackadder meet Shakespeare and then punch him and say, this is for, you know, students for for centuries to come. And then he has, you know, and this is for the four and a half hour long version of Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. And Colin Firth, as Shakespeare says, who's Kenneth Branagh? And I really did rather like Blackadder's retort of, you know, ooh, I'll I'll tell him you said that. He won't like it. Yeah, he'll be very hurt. Yeah, yeah. That's a nice little little moment. What I like about it, I mean, maybe it would have been fine to have the entire Blackadder saga end on such a tragic yet perfect note. But I also do kind of like the idea of, oh, well, you know, these these people are all still alive and and time keeps marching forward. It just did not connect with me the way that anything else did. Yeah, gosh. Ooh, I feel so emotionally drained right now. Is there anything else that we can say about this? I was thinking about the series finale, and I was thinking about how, you know, Baldrick and George, you know, have those moments where they're finally humanized in Mm -hmm. in an emotional way. And how do you feel about how the previous seasons really don't have that at all? Do you feel like there should have been more of that? No, I think that less is more, and I think that it has a greater impact. The other seasons didn't really merit it. Yeah, because I was asking myself, you know, could the other seasons have benefited from maybe a little bit more of that emotional aspect? And then I thought, well, no, because I I sort of love just how incredible that makes the the final season. And knowing they had that in them all along makes it like so much more satisfying that like we, we haven't had this at all. And now we're finally seeing it. And it's really, really fucking good. And it's earned. It's not unnecessary sentimentality just for the sake of, because it was really required. You needed a a sensitive, like a delicate touch for the subject matter. It was something that had a real effect on the lives of people who were alive in the country at the time that it aired. I mean, Ben Elton, both of his grandfathers fought in opposite sides of that war. So that was something that was very personal to him. And he was determined to be very respectful of that. And, you know, not to just make fun of it and and do it in such a lighthearted manner that didn't take into account the very serious... Uh, nature of it all Mm -hmm. so yeah they they totally knocked that one out of the fucking park right plus i would not have probably had the stamina for four seasons of that 
Yeah. If every season's going to fuck me up like that, that would have been that would really, be, really that would be difficult. Terrible. No, no, no. Be like the new Queer Eye. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is your second mention of Queer Eye on this. I love it. Oh, um, yes. I, f- I forgot I said that. <laughs> Queer Eye oh. for the medieval guy. <laughs> mm. It would have been weird and completely unnecessary to be like, here's a historical sitcom. It took place, you know, 300, 400 years ago. And, oh, look, they're being nice to each other. They really love each other. It would be it would be just as stupid as if, like, the finale of Faulty Towers hadn't been Manuel dragging off an unconscious Basil as if it had been Basil being like, I love you, Manuel, and giving him a kiss on the cheek. Like, you don't want, you don't want that. You don't want these people to completely change. No, you really don't. Blackadder is really the only essentially heartless protagonist that I've ever really loved or rooted for. And much of this show is... I don't want to say that the whole show is heartless, but he certainly is, and he's kind of the center of it. And I also, I, I totally know why Blackadder is an asshole. Like, if I were in a job I hated with no friends and, like, no love interest, I mean, like, you just I would... described my life, but I, I'm pretty damn chipper by comparison. <laughs> well, bust out that Scar t-shirt, Kaylee, and send it over to me. <laughs> but... Um... <laughs> But you you hear what I'm saying. You don't you don't see yeah. him get to have actual like sexy time until season four, which is just such a no, waste. Oh my you, god! You, were, you said that the reason that you were attracted to him was because you saw him have sexy time in season two. He oh, pays I for forgot. it, but it still happens. He, I forgot he totally. Oh, paid and Bob, for it. You, he he has sex in the first episode of season two. Does he have sex with Bob? Yes, she opens up her shirt and exposes herself to be like, see, I'm really a woman. And then he says, ah, oh, and then two minutes later. You know what? He doesn't have sex for very long, but he does it. I was confused by that because they were fully clothed again. I think it's a jab at his sexual skills or maybe just a way of indicating that he hasn't had it in a long time. Oh, okay. I did forget about that. Yeah, no, there's even there's even a smoking after sex joke because they both got pipes. No, I, I noticed that, but I also noticed they were clothed, which is why I was confused. Well, here's the thing. It would have been very jarring to show full frontal nudity on this sitcom. But they get away with showing him in his undies on, on more than one occasion. That was all we needed. Apparently that's all I needed. You know, we never did fuck, Mary kill, and I don't know how we would do it on this show. I don't know if you would do it with the characters within each season or like which era Blackadder would you pick? I did have one idea, but it's kind of too easy an answer, which is if we just talk about these seasons as if they were people. So like, obviously you kill season one, you marry season four because it's fucking perfect. I would fuck season two because it's kind of fun and uh, and kind of sexy. And I would live with season three because that's the world that that is most attractive to me and most fun. Oh, I, I'm in I'm in complete agreement then. Well, there you go. What about <laughs> fuck, Mary, kill, Blackadder, Baldrick, and Percy? Ooh. Um, you go. You go first. I always go first. I'd have to kill Baldrick and fuck Percy because I want that Blackadder dick more than once. <laughs> Can we change Percy to George? Because I would, I would marry George. Whether he's a prince oh. or a lieutenant, he's adorable. Okay. Kill Baldrick. Fuck George, marry Blackadder because I want that Blackadder dick more than one. <laughs> See, I feel bad killing Baldrick though because he's never done anything bad. I think no. it would depend on which Blackadder we're talking about because I might, I might kill Blackadder because he's kind of a dick and deserves it. As long as, as long as Baldrick could have like a year long bath before I touched him, I think that it would give him the time of his life. You know, he says in season four, a girl even kissed me. 
Imagine how happy that would make him. Yeah. I'd, no, I'd wait, fuck it, Baldrick and kill Blackadder and marry George for sure. This is the first time we've ever disagreed about this. I don't want to kill Baldrick because I want Baldrick dead. Sort of like how I don't I don't want to kill Vivian, you know. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's just that you want that Blackadder dead. <laughs> <laughs> Although, let's be yeah. real. I would, if, if I could just pick anybody from the, from the Blackadder verse to fuck, you know it's going to be season four Flashheart. I've got such a crush on him. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's installment of Anglophilia. I have had a delightful time discussing Blackadder with you, Kaylee. Likewise, I'm sure. So please make sure to tune in next week for our gasp season finale of We're All Gonna Die! Oh my god, no! We're going <laughs> over the top, people. <laughs> Sorry. Oh lord. No, you were that saying be... something important. Yeah, no, not as important as death, though. That's That's a sobering eventuality that we all have to look forward to and on that grim note okay so next week we're going to be talking about absolutely fabulous yay yeah i'm still thinking about death (laughs) i'm still thinking about death too my god let's i hope that that fun show will help to wash the taste of death out of our mouths you know what else will champagne darling champagne (laughs) there you go Uh, everybody load up on cheap white wine and uh prepare for us to uh bring you back some some ab fab which probably won't make either of us cry wait wait we should sign off with some sort of uh some sort of catchphrase but like i feel like saying i have a cunning plan is kind of stupid (laughs) a stupid note to end on because that doesn't make sense it's a setup for nothing. Yeah, I know. Plus, my uh, my notebook is opened up to monster sex. Well, I would say that uh, this is the stickiest situation since Sticky the Stick Insect got stuck on a sticky butt. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Anglophilia on iTunes. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Anglo Podcast. Toodle pip. What you call me?